Make sure to watch The Ringer's new live reaction show, Talk the Thrones. Each week, Andy Greenwald, mother of dragons Mallory Rubin, Chris Ryan, and our very own maester Jason Concepcion are coming to you live after the East Coast airings of Game of Thrones Season 7. Talk the Thrones will stream exclusively on Twitter and Periscope right after each episode ends and can be found on The Ringer's Twitter handle, at Ringer. Not the, just at Ringer. They'll be reacting at the same time as you, contextualizing the events and explaining everything everything that just unfolded again the show is called talk the thrones and you can stream it live after the east coast airings of game of thrones season seven on our twitter and periscope that's at ringer all right gm street let's do it welcome to gm street part of the ringer podcast network i'm tate frazier and i'm joined by mike lombardi lombardi how's it going I'm good. I'm good. It hasn't been a good summer for general managers, has it? I mean, oh my gosh. It's a good thing I'm retired on the beach and have to just write books and write it for the write for the ringer. That's I was going to say, racket. this podcast, obviously it's named and titled GM Street. We sort of are you know, a sympathetic, empathetic with the GM position. I'm sympathetic. You're empathetic. You've gone through the whole GM process. So we feel bad. We feel like a lot of our guys are taking some hits uh, this offseason. Probably the, the biggest name that came out, obviously John Dorsey, for the Kansas City Chiefs was the big name before. Um, but Dave Gettleman of the Carolina Panthers, the Panthers have been on a, a winning streak since about 2013 since he took over for Marty Herney. Um, Gettleman gets canned eight days before camp opens. Um, just first initial reactions to that news. I mean, it broke and people just sort of started freaking out just from the jump. Yeah, well, I think what happened, Gettleman's on his way back from Cape Cod. He's getting ready to come back to uh uh, Charlotte to spend time working on some contracts and Jerry Richardson informs him he's no longer needed. And I yep. think on the surface, when you look at it, you say, this is a classic example of an organization that really didn't want to, regardless of the win loss totals, regardless of the talent level that got increased, regardless of the style that he built with the football team, this team really wanted to go back to its old ways and operate. And they weren't going to embrace the, the Gettleman procedures of how he saw football being operated and I mm-hmm. think that that's really what caused him his job. Gettleman believes Tate that he feels like there's certain positions that are worth X amount of dollars, he feels other positions aren't worth as much and then he was going to manage his cap predicated on that. So let's just take a a big picture look at Dave Gettleman's tenure there. So he comes into the Panthers, you know, he uh he has all these guys that are already in line. Cam Newton's already there. Luke Keekley's already there. Thomas Davis is already there. Greg Olson's already there. Um, some of the big you know, names that people have heard in the offseasons, obviously we remember Norman last year. People remember when Steve Smith left in 2014. You know, People remember D'Angelo Williams. So all those situations have played out. But I think the biggest, one of the ones that has really been under the radar was the whole Jordan Gross situation. And for people that aren't familiar with that, Jordan Gross was a left tackle for the Panthers. He had been there for a long time. You know, people loved him in the community. He, uh, you know, Gettleman comes in and restructures a contract in 2013. And, you know, Jordan Gross isn't very happy about that. He ends up retiring in 2014, sort of handicaps the team, sort of hurts Gettleman. And that was one of the first little, you know, feelers into the fact that maybe Gettleman and this Panthers, you know, the organization weren't quite in line with their thinking. And then this summer, it's come out that Thomas Davis, Greg Olson, 
they're looking to be treated and you know uh, kind of given the red carpet treatment for how, how what they've done for this organization and they're expecting contract extensions. Um, and then Gettleman, you know, from what we've heard, Gettleman may not have been on the same side as those guys, and now he's out, and now he's canned. This is one of the first times I've seen players. It seems like they really had some sort of impact on the front office, and that doesn't always happen in football. I mean, is this a rare thing to see, or is this something that usually happens? But it's just being talked about more than usual. No, I, I think the reason the root of his firing has to be the players, and I think somebody was sent in there, and Gettleman got the job because Marty Herney's cap situation was atrocious. Yep, and he had to clean up a cap mess, and when you have to clean up a cap mess. You've got to tell some players, no, look, if you want to be a GM of an NFL team, you can't expect the players to like you. You don't go in the locker room. You don't walk around the players. You control the money for what they earn, and therefore there has to be a separation of church and state. They're going to be upset. Look, Thomas Davis is coming off of two ACL surgeries. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's been hurt quite a bit. He's an older player. I mean, you make a, you, you rip up an existing contract to extend him out. That creates some problems, and then you, of course you got the Greg Olson situation. You know what happened with Jordan Gross. I, I think what Gettleman tried to do is come in and pay really close attention to rebuilding the football team in his in his way. And unfortunately, I don't think that was that was the way of Jerry Richardson. I think Jerry Richardson likes the players to be happy. Look, Marty Herney gave a lot of money away. Marty Herman was very generous as the general manager. I mean, he's one of the few GMs who was able to survive. He gave Jake Delhomme a contract with no offset language in it. So when he cut Jake Delhomme, he double-dipped. That's rare for an NFL player to double-dip. And Marty Herney was willing to do that, and he didn't get fired for that contract. And I think you always have to look at the guy who replaces the person who got fired. It doesn't necessarily mean there was a takeover or a coup or some kind of conspiracy, but the style of the person that takes over. You know, Art Modell would fire a coach because he was bad with the media. He fires Belichick. He hires Ted Marshabrota because he's friendly with the media. Okay, and I think this situation, interim or not, is Marty Herney's very, very player friendly. He gives the money to the players, the players like him. If that's what Jerry wants, that's what he gets. And Marty Herney, for people that don't realize this, he was the Carolina Panthers GM from 2002 all the way up until October 2012 before Gettleman took over. I just want to know from your perspective, I mean, what really got lost in translation from Jerry Richardson has to know what Dave Gettleman's up to. He's not making these decisions. You know, he's not self-autonomous. He's not doing all these things. And then Jerry Richardson's finding about it in a vacuum. Jerry Richardson is very involved and he is, you know, approving these decisions that were being made. So really the question is, and a lot of people are trying to pinpoint exactly what happened for him to completely go full 180 on Gettleman. And I mean, a lot of people in the Charlotte area and some people I've talked to have said Thomas Davis and Greg Olson are basically, I mean, they're ambassadors for the Panthers in the city. I mean, they go out, they do all this stuff, do all this charitable acts in the city. Richardson treats Thomas Davis like his own son. And there was an interesting thing that uh, Mike Tolbert, uh, Tubbs Tolbert, put out on Instagram, actually. And was like, uh, he had the picture of Trey Turner, another guy that's looking for a new contract, Greg Olson, Thomas Davis. And he said uh, the quote that he put was determined, not deteriorated. And there was a lot of, you know, hoopla made about uh, Gettleman apparently was saying that Thomas Davis was de- deteriorated as a player and doesn't have the same value. And Richardson didn't take too kindly. To uh, to his guy Thomas Davis being talked to like that, and that's what led to the the Gettleman firing. So just all that behind the scenes stuff. So it just seems like you know over the past two years, ever since the Super Bowl, there's been a lot of drama behind the scenes in Carolina, and now it seems to be cleared up at this point. 
Yeah, well, I think what happens is, is look, you know, Gettleman doesn't didn't have the owner buying in. I mean, typically the way ownership should run is, look, you know, he's running the team. I'm letting him run the team. I'd love to keep you. I don't want to lose you. It was hard for Robert Kraft to lose Vince Wolfork. Mm-hmm. He loved him as a player. He he adored him. He loved him. But he's given Belichick the autonomy to run the team, and Bill felt, which was in the best interest, was to make a contract that he didn't feel he felt like was worthwhile to the Patriots, and Vince didn't want to take it. And I think he gives him that authority. And once Kraft steps over that authority, he loses faith in his head coach. And then, then there's dissension within the ranks. You have to add another layer into this tape. Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera comes yep. in, and Dave Gettleman's already – he gets he, Ron Rivera was hired by Marty Herney. Yep, exactly. Okay, and so Herney, Herney hired Rivera. Herney, then Herney gets fired, and then Rivera has to come in. And now Rivera has to adapt to what Gettleman wants to do, which is the Giants' way of doing business, which is size speed, which is you know reward certain positions based on – based on the ratings and based on the rankings and try to get the team younger and not overpay for certain things. Now he's got Herney back. So I think really what you're seeing is is the Panthers and Jerry Richardson liked it the way it was before. I wouldn't be surprised if they removed the interim tag for Marty Herney. I think Herney will end up getting Olsen done to a contract. He'll get Thomas Davis done to a contract. I believe they'll go through the procedures of looking for somebody else, they'll, they'll satisfy the Rooney rule. But at the end of the day, I think Jerry Richardson really likes Marty Herney. I think he likes the way he treats the players, and that's important to him. Do I think they're going to continue to win and continue to get good players? I'm not sure of that because I think Dave Gettleman was really good at his job. And that's sort of the underrated and undervalued part of Gettleman. I feel like he's been placed as this bad guy that wasn't willing to pay the money and give people contracts that they deserved when really Dave Gettleman is a talent evaluator. He's a football lifer. He's been around the game for a long time. I mean, he was known as a guy that would be, you know, 3 a.m. in the office at Bank of America Stadium just watching tape, you know, for for as long as he could at night, just trying to find, you know, diamonds in the rough. And you look at some of the defensive linemen he, you know, he drafted over the years and, um, um, and some of the decisions he made, you know, he's a little, you know, he was quick to pull the trigger to let guys go, obviously. But, you know, it did lead to them going to the Super Bowl. It led to them having, you know, one of their greatest runs in franchise history over the past four or five years. And now to look at it full picture, I mean, it seems like, do, do you think it's in a position where the Panthers are f- content with being, you know, middle of the pack? It seems like they were going for, Gettleman wanted to take them to another level, level in an upper echelon of NFL football. But, you know, they seem to be content with being comfortable in their position and now they're just reverting back to the mean, basically, and going back with Herney. And Herney's loved, you know, by a lot of people as well. But it seemed like Herney's a former media guy, so yeah. he's loved by the media. He has, yeah. owns a radio station down there. He's good with the media. I mean, look, that's what he does. He was he was a newspaper writer that became a person that became a general manager in the National Football League. So, you know, he's not his background. Not has always been in personnel. He he listens to people. Yes, he does some things. But look, I, I think when you're trying to make everybody happy, you make no one happy. Yep. And I think it's going to be a fascinating situation to see how they change the team. They've got like a lot of good pieces in place. You know, some of them were because of Herney. But remember, this is a team that was paying two running backs in an astral Nama money. I mean, they had D'Angelo Williams, and then they had also had Jonathan Stewart. I mean, what run it? What teams pay that kind of top level talent to running backs? Now, these people say, well, the Patriots are paying a lot of running backs. They're paying a lot of running backs, not paying just two. Yep. And I think that's what happens. And look. The situation in Carolina is Jerry Richardson. He fired his son at one time. He's capable of firing anybody. He likes Herney. He likes the way Mm -hmm. Herney runs the team. I think he wants his players happy. Does that mean he's going to win a Super Bowl? I'm not sure of that. 
another team that's trying to to figure out uh, how to get back to the Super Bowl and get back to uh, the dynasty that they once were in the late 80s and 90s. The Dallas Cowboys, there's been a lot of drama this offseason. Ezekiel Elliott's been in the forefront of all the conversations. Um, obviously, another incident happened at a Di- Dallas bar late Sunday night. Uh, the police confirmed on Monday. No arrests were made. Elliott was involved. Uh, the, the situation still remains unknown. Jason Garrett comes out uh, today, and he says that you know they, they believe very strongly, and this is in quotes, in Ezekiel Elliott, even though he has not spoken to Elliott since the most recent incident. But he plans to visit with Elliott uh, come this Friday. This Cowboys situation, I mean, we talked about it a little a little bit last week on GM Street. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott just seems to be a guy that can't stay out of the headlines uh, for be- for better or worse. And now the Cowboys are trying to clean up his act and you know trying to get him in camp and trying to figure it out. But I mean, what do we see? Do, do we see the Cowboys really taking a downturn this year? And is Zeke really going to be this much of a head case all season long? Well, I think if I'm if I'm Jason Garrett, I, I'm preparing for. Elliott missing some time. I'm yep. going to make sure that Darren McFadden gets a lot of reps. I'm going to make sure that Alfred Morris is ready to go this summer because I really feel like the best thing he could do with Elliott is really think about him in October. Don't think about him in September. Get him in shape. Try to get his life back in order first and get him in shape and get him ready to go. Because here's usually what happens to guys that have these type of off-seasons. They pull a hamstring. They have nagging injuries. they got a groin. They have things that keep them off the field, things that keep them from being as productive as they're capable of being. And if I'm Jason Garrett, I'm thinking about who I'm going to build on my team for September because the chances of me having Elliott at 100% or even having him at all, I don't think are very good. So that's how I would approach that. I think the Cowboys are going to find out, as we talked about last week, Schedule makes a big difference. It's going to be much more difficult for them to handle it. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at what they have to accomplish and when you take Elliott off the field for them, all of a sudden maybe they're not as good offensively as they could be. But for four or five games, maybe the combination of McFadden and Morris can give them something. The key is going to be whether Prescott can continue to improve and have a better season than they did last year, if that's even possible. And. One thing that's really not been discussed. I mean, a lot of people are going on. There's, you know, how do you reach out to Ezekiel Elliott? How do you make him feel? You know, some sort of, you know, make him come out and just, you know, be contrite about the situation and be upfront about it. You know, a lot of people, are, you know, if he misses game, then he's going to have to repay his bonus. Uh, it was like two hundred forty thousand dollars a game. Um, he got a signing bonus in March of sixteen million. Um, so that'll hurt him a little bit. But I mean, is, is there a veteran that could come in? I mean, even may, maybe a Darren McFadden himself to to get. In Elliot's head to talk to him. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, people talking about ways to connect with Elliot and maybe Dak should reach out to him. But I mean, right now it just seems like this guy's kind of on his own thing, kind of spiraling out of control a little bit, and there's no way to reel him back in. I mean, should they even be looking for a replacement like a Jeremy Hill or someone, some other running back for another team, maybe try to make a trade just to make sure that if Elliot really does go off the rails, they have something in place where, you know, they have someone competent enough to be behind this line for a full season. Well, I think the one thing the Cowboys have done pretty well on on offense is have good depth, and I, and I think that that depth is with McFadden and Marsh. Those two guys are mm-hmm. going to be better than anybody they could trade for a sign. And obviously, they're going to keep their eyes open if they if they happen to lose a back. But look, there's nobody going to talk to to Elliot who's going to convince them. Remember, fear does the work of reason, and unless you can reason with him, mm-hmm. he's not really going to be able to change. You can bring in all the old players in, you can talk about the importance, but it's got to come from where Elliot resides, or else it won't work. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an odd situation down in Dallas after a great season last year. It just seems like this entire offseason has been pretty negative for them. But Jerry Jones is still positive. He's still out there, still talking to people, says, you know, the Dallas Cowboys way is uh, still holding up for him. And, you know, he's excited for the season. So maybe if Dallas comes back and they, you know, win 14 games again, people really won't care about uh, all this. You want to bet on that? You, you think the Cowboys, let's place a little GM Street bet. You oh, really yeah. think the Cowboys are going are gonna to win 14 games? No. You know? Yeah, no, no way. There, there's just it's just too much going on. It's just too much noise on the outside. Last year was, you know, it was way more than people bargained for for two rookies. And now it just seems the sophomore slump is really kicking in. But I don't know. I mean, if Dak seems to have his head together um, and seems ready to go and ready to roll, it's a lot on that defense, too. I mean, just a lot of things happen to Dallas. It's not just Ezekiel Elliott, but he's taking all the headlines. I don't know. It just seems like right now Dallas is is not in a good spot. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll get on some more positive stuff. Football's close. It's coming back. Camp is uh, right around the corner. A lot of teams are getting ready to gear up uh, to report to camp. Lombardi, you're going to be out in the field. You're going to be going to camps, checking out teams, seeing how uh, everything's working out and shaking out there on the East Coast. Um, you're still in Jersey right now, so you got a lot of places to go and a lot of places to see. What are like the main things for camp that you're looking forward to seeing, some major storylines? I mean, I know you said you're going to go check out the Eagles, the Jets, the Giants, right? Uh, the the Patriots, of course. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of big teams, a lot of big ticket teams there that you're going to see. Well, I, th- I think, you know, camp is, look, I think there's two camps. There's the, the preseason camp, which are those four or five games. Some teams have five, some teams have four. And then there's the September season. Yeah. I really think by the way the rules are, September is part of training camp. And September also allows you to learn who's your football team. And I think the teams that understand that, you know, if you can get two and two in September and find out about your team and get your team ready because you can have more condensed practices, I think that's really what you have to weigh as you look over the landscape of the season. But for me, when you go to training camp, it starts with special teams. These Mm -hmm. young players, all these guys that have been drafted, that everybody has high hopes for, you have to look at the special teams because if they're not playing in the kicking game, are they, in fact, going to make the team? Can they dress on 45? There's two things you have to do as a general manager. you got to figure out who's going to dress at 45, and then from 46 to, let's say, 60, which is your practice squad included, those guys are probably for next year's team or for an injury. So you need to look at it in preseason when you're putting together the roster is, are you keeping that guy on 46 to 60, or is he one of the 46 guys you're going to dress? And if he is, he has to make an impact in the kicking game, which then leads you to, as a fan, if you really want to understand who's going to make the team, you start by studying the punt team. You start by studying the kickoff coverage team. And then within those teams, you start studying who the L4 and L5 are on those teams, who the backup personal protector is on the punt team. All those players are guys that teams are trying to find out about if they can make the team. Training camp is about finding out and putting players in position to make the team. Fans go to the game, they watch a running back run for 50 yards and nobody touches him and he scores a touchdown. And the next day in the paper you read, oh my God, player X is going to make the team because he had a 50-yard run. Well, A, he probably really didn't have to do a whole lot to make the 50-yard run. B, he was against no competition when he made the 50-yard run because yep. it, it was the threes versus the threes. And who could say he could make that run against really good players? So when I, re, when I go to camp, I, I want to watch the level of competition who's practicing against who, and especially when teams go against one another. That's the best way to view a team. 
and then from there decide, okay, if this young player makes the team, is he going to play in the kicking game? And some of these kids you drafted haven't played. So special teams is really what training camp is, is about in terms of an evaluation, and you can get a lot out of that. And when you go into a camp, right? I mean, obviously, you know about your stars and, you know, all those guys are going to be in the depth chart. But that that 40, you know, 48 to 60 range, I mean, even stretching out to like, you know, the 80 people that may open up in camp. I mean, do you have a a, a mindset of who you expect to be on? A, do you already have it penciled in, like in your mind, a depth yeah, chart of where guys are yeah. going to fit? Or do you, I mean, because one thing is to, to see it on the field is obviously changes everything from what you preconceive. But I mean, do you, do you have everything mapped out and ready to go? Obviously, I mean, I'm right. You have, so you have two. You basically, you start out that you start out with about four columns on your on your on your pad when you start watching practice. The locks; these are the guys that you know are on the team. Yep. You know, you go watch the Patriots play. You know, Tom Brady's on the team. You know, Rob Gronkowski's on the team. You know, Deion Lewis is perhaps on the team. You know, certain guys are on the team, right? Yep. And then you have these guys that you have to watch and see how they progress in camp and see what development they are. And then you need to watch guys that you're developing and which guys can impact the 18 team and which guys are probably not going to be able to impact any team at all. And so then you start making columns. And then every day at practice, you can move a guy from one column to the next. Mm -hmm. The column that you know guys are locks to make, you rarely touch that column. You know, you don't touch that. You know, you know Edelman, you know Gronk, you know Brady. Now you go to that other column and now you have about how many spots do we really have open? And you're looking at it through a 46-man lens, not a 53-man lens. Because what happens is sometimes you may want to put a guy on practice squad and not carry him on the 53 because you can't carry him. You have too many players at that position, and the numbers don't add up. So if you could get him on the practice squad, then he works out better. So how do you do that? You don't play him in a game. Yep. <laughs> you don't play him in a preseason yep. game. You, you, you kind of like hide him. You're the only one who knows he's having a good camp. Last year, the Patriots never really played much of Woodrow Hamilton in a camp game so that he was able to come in. He's a defensive tackle from Mississippi. He's a college free agent, made their team, got cut, bounced around. Now, he's a rundown defensive tackle, so there's not a lot of people that are going to go after him. But the reality of the situation here is, you have to pay close attention to who's playing in the kicking game, who's not playing, and then those columns start to fill up every single day. And then once you do that, you can come around to your 53. I've always just found it very interesting because, uh, you know, obviously a lot of guys are already penciled in, like you just said, untouchables. But just the all the variables that go into there are just so many guys on a football team that you have to figure out. And I mean, you know, all the way down to conditioning, and you don't really know what guys are doing. In the I just feel like going into a camp, there's such a an overwhelming process just to make sure everyone that's already you know supposed to be slotted in is right and they're ready, and and trying to make sure that you have those secondary guys ready and the guys that you want to grow. I mean, there's just so many incremental shifts that happen across the board then you have to add in the intelligence and the volume of offense and defense and so you know what you think of those players in column two or three in week one by the time you get to week four of camp because of the volume of offense that's been added or the volume of defense those guys in column two that had a chance they go to column four because they can't quite get it all yep. so they've eliminated themselves and if you're just objective with it tate if you don't try to force anything and you just let the players dictate who makes the team and who doesn't, it becomes easy by the tape. A guy that's high volume on offense uh, that will not be, or at least right now, will not be reporting to training camp until he signs his uh, franchise tender, 
Running back Le'Veon Bell for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Bell, uh, 26 right now, will actually turn 26 in February of next year. Um, has had a career average of 128.7 yards per game. That ranks first in the NFL amongst playmakers over the last four seasons. He's a free agent in 2018 coming up. Um, when you look at the Le'Veon Bell situation and, and what that means for the Pittsburgh Steelers and their future, I mean, he is their future, um, or at least they hope he's their future. When you have this thing weighing over training camp, I mean, that's obviously the biggest storyline. How does that affect you know Mike Tomlin and the rest of those guys getting ready for the season, not having Bell in there? Well, I think it's pretty easy because one thing about running backs is you, you know you don't want them in you don't really want them in a preseason. You know, Bell's not playing in a preseason game. You know, Bell needs to be in condition and Bell needs to be able to handle the stuff and play with cleats on and do that. But for the most part, you don't want to injure him in a preseason game or you don't want him to take reps in that. So it's more about fine tuning. And for me, Mike Tomlin's pretty good at this situation. He's just going to ignore the whole Le'Veon Bell thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. when that gets resolved, and he knows it'll get resolved by week one, the kid's not going to miss a game check. We all know that. The yep. one thing about the NFL is all these holdouts are always so dramatic in July. Nobody's missing a check in September, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's be real honest. And that's why I said earlier about how September becomes really part of the preseason because if you count September in your preseason configuration, then Le'Veon Bell is going to need September to get ready for the full run of the season, which is fine which is okay, because you'll bring him in, you'll alternate him, you'll have him play a role. James Conner's going to get some reps as a running back there. So you've got players there, and then you let them go. But if you think that you know a player's going to miss a check, no chance. But a running back especially, I never minded running backs holding out, because for me it kept them away from potentially getting hurt. Yeah, but another guy on the Pittsburgh Steelers team, a guy that you really do need in camp, uh, left tackle Alejandro Villanueva, He's still waiting to see. Uh, he w- he wants a new contract. Obviously, he's holding out. He was in OTAs in minicamp because he signed a waiver that protected him against injury. But when you have that situation too, I mean, those are two integral parts of the Steelers team. I mean, obviously, left tackle to protect Ben Roethlisberger, a guy that takes a lot of has taken a lot of hits over the years, and then obviously Le'Veon Bell. Um, does Villanueva is that even more important than the Le'Veon Bell situation to have your left tackle in camp? He needs to be in camp. I think Mike Munchak has done a great job coaching him and getting him ready to play. He needs to be in camp. He needs to get ready to go. The only way he's going to get a big contract is to be keep playing. Yeah. I mean, here's a kid that they've turned around. He was an Army guy. They, it was a defensive tackle. Chip Kelly had him. They flipped him around. They've made this guy into a really good player, and he deserves a really good contract. He'll get a good contract. I think if he's smart, he signs his tender, goes to camp, and eventually he'll get taken care of, whether it's by the Steelers or by another team. You know, Villanueva, he came to the mini camps. So he's told the team he it's important for him to play. He's trying to do it. And, you know, most of these guys, Thomas Davis, as he holds out at Carolina, if he starts, you know, they start to lose money because they have contracts. And so the only leverage they have is pretending they're going to hold out. I don't think anybody will, and I think teams can move on to it. The teams have their roster set. They're going to move forward, and they're going to just get the guys that are ready to play, ready to play. Well, a guy that has all the leverage in the world right now, that's Matt Ryan, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, of course. 32 years old. He's still got two years left, $35 million remaining on his five-year deal that he signed in July 2013. Um, it's just right now, it's sitting in this position. Matt Ryan basically has come out and said he's going to let the business side, all that stuff, work work itself out. He's not really thinking about it right now. But, you know, we saw Andrew Luck get the get the, the big deal where he was the highest paid quarterback. Derek Carr then trumps him. Matt Stafford's probably the next guy up to, uh, to get the highest paid you know contract in football. And then Matt Ryan would be, you know, right after him. 
him. Um, with Matt Ryan's situation, I mean, should he be pressing to get this contract done after what he did last season, or is it one of those things where Matt Ryan is who he is and you know can sit back and relax and just do what he does? You know, I look at Matt Ryan, and I've been watching tape on the Falcons' offense, and I'm trying to figure out how they're going to work it with Steve Sarkeesian, who, you know, on paper looks like he can replace Kyle Shanahan because they know similar offenses. But I think Steve Sarkeesian and Matt Ryan have a really difficult challenge in front of them because what Kyle Shanahan did with that offense and what Matt Ryan did with Kyle Shanahan wasn't a career year. It was a career squared year. I mean, it was remarkable. When you look at the numbers and how he played, it was the third, Tate. It was the third least amount of passes he threw in his career, and yet he had career numbers. His percentage of touchdown, his yards per attempt was over 9, 9.3. The best in his career was 7.5. I mean, it's remarkable what he's been able to accomplish with Kyle. And people say, well, they're just going to continue on down that path because, you know, they got the offense and everybody's back. Maybe they're going to change a fullback, but for the most part, their entire offense is back and they can get going. I think Kyle's scheming and his ability to put the matchups and create the situations is really being underplayed here. And I think Matt Ryan probably knows it. As for Matt Ryan's contract, look, he's just the best thing he can do is keep waiting because when Stafford comes in, maybe Stafford comes in at 27-5. Maybe he comes in at 30. Yep. Then all of a sudden that just raises everybody else's number up and it helps him. And with these career numbers he had last year, he can stand he can stand around next year and he could say, "Hey, look, I, I owe you owe me the money." And like Kirk Cousins, the question you have, if you don't want to pay Matt Ryan, who's going to be your quarterback? If you don't want to pay Kirk Cousins, the Redskins have yet to demonstrate who would be their quarterback. It's not Colt McCoy. Yep. They don't draft one, and yet they don't want to pay Kirk Cousins. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It should be pointed out that Matt Stafford and Matt Ryan both have the exact same agent, Tom Condon. So Condon's going to be able to work a little magic there, maybe get uh, Stafford a number, and then uh, that'll help boost up Ryan's value when he actually does his negotiating uh, yeah, later. Because what, yep. what happens here is is these contracts are not hard to do. Because when you're in a top five player at your position, the whole reason Le'Veon Bell's holding out is only because he wants to set the market. He wants to blow the market away. When you're in those top five contracts and you know what the market is, it's fairly easy to get a deal done. What really becomes the most concerning factor is how to structure the contract and how to give the guarantees. And remember, on all these contracts, including Derek Carr's contract, you have to value them over three seasons. You can't value over the, over the length of what's been reported. The guarantee for three years, what is it? The, and how much money? of that guarantee is a percentage within the first three years. Teams typically would like to pay 50% of the total package in three years and guaranteed. Never works out that way. Agents and players probably want to get 80 to 90% of the first three years. Never works out that way. So there's somewhere in the middle. And I think that's what you're going to see here. Stafford's going to set the market. Then Ryan comes in, and all of a sudden, things just keep going up. But for me, the fascinating part about Matt Ryan, I think he was remarkable last year. And the Atlanta offense was so good. They were not even. They were only in the bottom two categories, in the bottom third of the NFL in offensive statistics, in a couple meaningless stats. They were so good. I think it's going to be a fascinating year to watch if they can, in fact, duplicate what they did. Absolutely. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons, a lot of people will have their eyes uh, turned to those guys, especially after the 28-3 debacle in the Super Bowl, and to see if Matt Ryan and those guys can bounce back. Um, Lombardi, let's get to our yeah, final segment. Uh, word on the street. 
where we talk about sights and sounds around the NFL and the major storylines, and we get your reaction on things. First up, the NFL has announced that they will eject coaches for two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties in games. Uh, my question to you, Lombardi, who will be the first coach to get ejected for two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties? I have a few thoughts on my mind, but uh, I'm hoping it's Jason Garrett. I hope he just loses his mind finally. Finally breaks I don't that see, I mean, other than clapping, what does Garrett do? I mean, how could you ever even think that Garrett's going to... When do you ever see him... I, mean, he gets I think he's been hypnotized for like 30 years. I'm hoping that he finally I mean, breaks he, the I curse. I don't see it when he gets... You know, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, Jack Del Rio seems to get fired up, I I would think. But to get two, that's a lot. I mean, that's that would be a lot. I, I, I would... I mean, it's hard to see coaches get called for one anymore. I don't know. I think this is kind of like a rule that I'm not sure really is ever going to be implemented into effect. What's your guess? I got Zimmer. Zimmer's probably my number one on the board. And I, I'll go with you. He's a fiery guy. He yeah. can lose his mind. Especially if you're watching Sam Bradford throw interceptions and get sacked and fumbled. I mean, no, yeah. I think he gets more mad when Sam Bradford throws those completions for two yards after it's <laughs> third and twelve. That, that is, would drive me. That would make me jump off the bus. Too. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, maybe Andy Reid gets two just for bad. You know, just clock management. They just give him penalties for the fact that it was just so bad. <laughs> They just, now that could now that now I wouldn't bet against that. I mean, the league office would come in and say, "Look, Andy, the clock. You, you just you know, the, some somebody in Switzerland's operating a clock, and you're doing it way wrong." Yeah, I could see that. I, I've said off along, Andy should just outsource it to India. Or maybe Ron Rivera speaks for the first time, and then he gets to you know they're so taken aback that he actually spoke that uh, they give him two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. I don't know. I mean, you're right. You're going through it. I mean, maybe Adam Gase gets all fiery <laughs> and pissed off. Maybe he'll do that. But I mean, most of the guys guys are pretty stoic, which is the right thing to do because you're trying to play chess in your head. I mean, that's where I think fans miss the point. This is such a chess game, and if you're a true head coach, you're trying to figure out what the moves you need to make to put your team in the best position, and to get all emotional, you lose your thought process. Would you ever see a chess player go nuts? No, exactly. I mean, could you imagine Bobby Fischer getting pissed off at a move and going crazy? Maybe you could, because Bobby Fischer might have done that, but but most of those guys just stand there and keep staring at the board. I think that's the way you got to approach it. I know who will not get this. It'll be Jim Caldwell. There's no way Jim Caldwell will ever get an unsportsmanlike no. conduct penalty, and that is a fact. You can put. And that if in. you brought a lip reader in to figure out what Jim Caldwell was saying in the microphone, I defy him to find it. I think he would just say, "I can't believe I have this job still." <laughs> uh, another big story: NFL teams are uh, coming out. One a little story that I thought that you would find fun. NFL teams are saying that they should let their quarterbacks do the punting. Like Randall Cunningham back in the day. Randall Cunningham, for people that don't know, has uh, the third longest punt in history, 91 yards back in 1989 against the Giants. Um, would you like to see quarterbacks be punters? I mean, obviously that takes a position away from from the specialists out there, but I, I always enjoy it. And also, it, it plays in the I think you know, it would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's it would be down. fascinating to see. Yeah. You know, I mean, to have them back there punt. I mean, typically most of the most quarterbacks have ability to punt. They're usually the best athletes on the team. Tommy Tommy Tupa, the uh, the player from the who was drafted by the Arizona by the Phoenix Cardinals, uh, went to Ohio State, played quarterback, but really became a punter in the NFL. Mm-hmm. He he could do it. I mean, Randall Cunningham. I was at UNLV when Randall Cunningham was there, and Tate. It was like the bionic man kicked the ball. <laughs> now, what Randall could do too, that he never had a chance to do was he could kick field goals. Yeah. He yep. could kick field goals like you couldn't believe. He had this long leg and it whipped around. And for him, I mean, kicking was never a problem. And frankly, when you if you watched him punt, I don't think it was like Mickelson hitting golf ball. The thing just kept going higher and higher in the air. It's really a remarkable sight to see. 
I always admire the fact that Randall Cunningham could punt, and the fact that people don't realize that he did that uh, makes me a little upset. So I'm glad that we could bring that up today. Uh, another storyline, James Conner has come out. He is the NFL's best-selling rookie jersey. People remember him. He had cancer. He was a running back at Pittsburgh. You know, as an amazing story. He's a great running back, uh, obviously a great tradition of running backs at Pittsburgh in general. But what does that say for James Conner to have the best-selling rookie jersey? I think that's pretty cool. Well, I think it's great, but I think it says a lot about the Steelers. I mean, Steeler fans, the Steeler nation strong. Yep. I mean, that's the one thing is when you play the Steeler Nation, they're all over the place and they travel, they come to games and, and they're powerful and they buy their jerseys. I mean, that's the thing. You go to Steeler games, everybody's in a jersey. Yes. I mean, some of them are in uh, some of them in Frenchy Fuqua's jersey. <laughs> some of them are in Rocky Blyer's jersey. Some of them are in Ben Roethlisberger's jersey. Some yep. of them are in Neil O'Donnell's jersey. Signs I mean, but they're in their jersey. Yeah. Yeah, they they buy jerseys, and the stadium is filled with jerseys. That's it, to me, it doesn't surprise me a Steeler would lead it. Every single time I go to a Panthers game, there is someone in a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey or an Oakland Raiders jersey just sitting around me for no reason. They're not pulling for anyone. They're just sitting there just to let people know, hey, we're still here. We're still fans. It could be Freddie Bolitnikoff. It could be some of the old Raiders. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Lombardi, um, anything else? Any more thoughts uh, about the league right no, now? No, I'm just, I think well, next week we get going into this whole thing. I mean, we finally get football back, and uh, well, at least we'll have some camps to talk about. And we get to start talking about how all these great players and players are doing at camp. And, and really we'll try to temper everybody and understand that most of the rookies that are having good camps probably won't make an impact on their team until 18. I just can't wait until you report from camp and tell me how everyone looks so great. That's uh... I, I'm going to. And what I really <laughs> want to do is we got to get our we got to get our boss, Bill Simmons, on board. But I think Joe House and I should take it on tour mm. and do diners and camps all on the same day. Like go to a couple diners, evaluate them, and then go to a camp and evaluate them. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? Crab cakes and football. That sounds like Joe House. That'll that be good. Sounds like ours. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, Tate. And thank you all for listening to GM Street. And that's part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Keep supporting, keep commenting, keep reviewing, keep doing all that you're doing. We really appreciate it. And we will be back next week.